Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Meb Faber Show. This is your host, Meb Faber. We have a great guest today, Jared Dillian. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So for a little bit of contextual background, you know, some of my listeners may not be familiar with you. You have, like myself and many of our guests so far, a bit of an atypical background, finding your way to, to Wall Street. Could you give maybe kind of a brief or not so brief intro of kind of how you ended up where you are? Well, I, ended, I was a third generation Coast Guard officer and I went to the Coast Guard Academy for college and graduated in 96. What, where is that, by the way? That's in Connecticut. It's in New London, Connecticut. It's just like the other military academies. Most people haven't heard of it because it's much smaller. There's only about 900 cadets. You know, they graduate about, you know, 200 a year. It's like a tiny version of the Naval Academy. The first, my first couple of tours out of the academy, I was, I spent a couple of years at sea out of a cutter out of Washington State. And then, um, I was doing Intel stuff at the Pacific headquarters in uh, Alameda, California. And sort of while this was going on, I, you know, the Coast Guard was never really for me. First of all, like I get violently ill on a boat. It just, you know, the military lifestyle just, you know, it wasn't working for me. I really became interested. You know, I actually, I started uh, researching personal investing when I was about 22. And I had no exposure to any business, anything at all up until this point. I was a math major in college. So I started studying mutual funds and I started studying efficient market theory. The first Wall Street book I ever read was Malkiel. And I read John Bogle and I read all this efficient market stuff. And I kind of disagreed with it, but I didn't really know why. And so I decided to go to business school and I went to business school at University of San Francisco part-time while I was still in the Coast Guard. And then also at the same time, uh, I got a job on the PCX Options Exchange in downtown San Francisco. So I was doing that part-time, going to school part-time, and then working for the Coast Guard full-time. And so my first real introduction to capital markets was in the options world, which I think if anybody is going to start anywhere, that's the best way to do it. Just start with the hardest thing first, and then everything else is easy after that. I really learned a lot while I was there. And it was, of course, it was during the dot-com bubble. You know, so I'm on the, you know, on the P coast and we're trading options on Microsoft and Inktomi and PMCS and Rambus and all these, you know, bubble stocks. So out of there, I got a job at Lehman Brothers and I started in 2001 doing index arbitrage and I did that for a couple of years. You know, I excelled at that. So then they made me head of the ETF desk and I ran the ETF desk from 2004 to 2008. My career there ended in the bankruptcy. And it was right after that, that I started my newsletter, the Daily Dirt Man. So for listeners, this is a pretty much daily piece you put out, right? Yeah, it is. A, it's a daily piece. I've been doing it pretty much every day since 2008 now. 
It's a bit institutional in nature. It's, uh, you know, it's intended for sophisticated investors. I would say most of my client base is institutional. I've been doing it for a while. It's a great piece. You know, I, re- I really love doing it. One, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show is that this is one of the few pieces I do read every day. So kudos to you. I once had a friend describe your writing style as they say, you know what? He writes like a man. And I don't know what that means, but uh, it's... <laughs> It was meant as a compliment. So <laughs> the name of the newsletter is The Daily Dirt Nap. comes out pretty much every day, and it's pretty wide-ranging. There's topics, and it really feels like it's from a, a trader's perspective. And so what I wanted to do today is touch on a few topics, that some issues you've been talking about in the last few weeks. And, and by the way, you're now located in South Carolina, right? Yeah, that's right. Yep. All right. So about as far as you can get from Wall Street as possible, which is wonderful because if you read a lot of Jared's work, it tends to be very atypical, a little, a, a lot of opinions that aren't necessarily maybe in the mainstream. I, I, I've spent time in your area in South Carolina, but when I was in, in high school, we used to go down to the beach there and I have spent at least a little bit of time dancing in the cages at the Spanish Galleon, but that was, that was many years <laughs> ago, many, many lifetimes ago. All right. Let's get started. So. There's a couple of different questions. First is, in one of your recent issues, you suggest, you say, if you think 2016 is the opposite of 1981, then you should do the opposite. In 1981, you should have, one, bought stocks, sold gold, and bought bonds. So now, you should sell stocks, buy gold, sell bonds. Is this something that is playing into your thesis? And there's a couple different kind of spider webs that this is going off of. And this may have been out of the piece called The Best Investing Book of All Time, which maybe you could share what book that is and a little bit about uh, the, that line of thinking. So I think The Best Investing Book of All Time was written in 1981, and it was by Gary Schelling and uh, Carol Sokoloff. And Carol obviously does 13D now. Gary Schelling is still pretty well known as, a, as an economist. Their thesis back in 1981 was that inflation, which was then about 14% a year, that it was going to come to an end, that inflation was going to drop. And if you think inflation is going to drop, you think interest rates are going to come down, you think bonds are a massive buy, you probably think stocks are a massive buy, and you probably think that commodities are vastly overvalued. So they came out with this book in 1981. And actually, I met Gary Schilling at a conference. I met him at SIC just about a month ago. And I introduced, we hadn't met before, so I introduced myself to him. And I said, I said, sir, I said, this is, you wrote the greatest investing book of all time. And he just, he just started cracking up. He said, that book was the biggest bomb of all time. The biggest bomb. Like in 1981, everybody thought that we were going to get hyperinflation. Inflation was going to go on forever. And nobody wanted to read a book about how inflation was going to end. Nobody, nobody believed them. And so they printed, you know, and I, I, he told me what the print run was. They printed thousands of copies. They literally were just giving them away for free. <laughs> they just couldn't sell the book. And if you think about the types of financial books that were selling back in 1981, I mean, it was Doug Casey's Crisis Investing, right? Like that was a big bestseller. Gary Schilling and Carol Sokoloff, like their advice was much better. You know, if you bought bonds in 1981 and held them for any length of time, you were pretty happy. Stocks were about as cheap as you could possibly get. And one of the things, you know, honestly, like they're, the big reason they came up with this thesis, their number one reason wasn't even really economics. It had to do with the regulatory environment. And so what they said was, is that regulation increased 
the cost of everything. You have to comply with regulations. It just adds cost to whatever product you're selling. And so, you know, in the 60s and 70s, we had developed this really like overactive regulatory state. And in the late, in the late 70s, towards the end of Carter's presidency, they were starting to deregulate stuff, particularly the airlines. That was the most famous example, but all kinds of stuff. Carol and Gary's, Gary Schilling said that this inflation that was caused by regulation, they called it inflation, inflation by fiat, right? And since we were enter, entering this period of deregulation, that was going to go away and costs were going to come down and it was going to be a powerful deflationary force. And now, if you think about what the political environment looks like in 2016 versus 1981, I mean, 1981 was a free market revolution. You know, Ronald Reagan was elected. We took tax rates from 70% down to 28%. I mean, it was, you know, it was cataclysmic. And, you know, what kind of revolution are we having now? I mean, you know, the Republican candidate is, I would not characterize as a free market candidate. You know, Bernie Sanders almost be Hillary Clinton. You know, we've moved very, very far left since then. And, you know, regulations during the Obama administration have just shot up dramatically. You know, all of this is going to feed into inflation at some point in the future. And everything that worked in 1981 the opposite is going to work today, which means we're going to have more inflation, which means it's bad for bonds, which means it's good for commodities and means probably bad for stocks too. We did a recent piece and it's, it's sort of tangential to this and it's not a system, you know, my, we, us being quants here, it's not a system I would put money to, but it's something that's more just kind of representative of what's going on in the, in the world right now where this was actually in our first book back in 08 where we said, this is just a fun study. We're going to look at asset classes, the big ones. So U.S. stocks, foreign stocks, bonds, if they're down multiple years in a row and future one, two return, two year returns from then. And what we found, which is not surprising to most people will be that the more down years in a row an asset class ha- had, the it's, first of all, it's very rare. So for three years down a row, that happened to the long bond, like you mentioned in the late 70s. And then again, in that big bear market coming out of the bubble you were talking about in the early 2000s for stocks, foreign stocks, and emerging. So only four times in the past 40 years for the major assets, we had that just happen last year for emerging markets and commodities. And as as many people know, emerging markets tend to have a fairly high exposure or correlation to what commodities are doing. So coming into this year, Future returns are usually in the 20 plus percent range for that sort of setup, but just sort of representative. And you're kind of talking about these tectonic plates that are shifting. And these aren't necessarily, you know, one quarter, even one year trades. These are trades that can last many years. And I think one you mentioned at one point, you said, if I was to get arrested and go to jail for 10 years, what would be the trade that you mentioned? You said, if I get 10 year, close your eyes go to jail what, what what's the trade uh, i mean i mean it would be it would be some derivative of what we were just talking about you know it would probably include em oh I, you're, this was from one of my issues i think i think you i mean it's the same thesis but i think you may have, you may have actually said commodities same thing same general thesis though yeah i mean yeah i, I think about that a lot like you know because people make money being smart but people also make money by being really dumb I mean, if, and, and if you think about that, there's a lot of really unsophisticated people that get rich because they get in the right asset class and don't touch it for 20 years. You know, 
and just and just ride it. And so I think about that a lot. Like if I if like I weren't allowed to touch my portfolio, like if we're you know if I went to jail and I couldn't trade for ten or twenty years, how would I want to leave it when I went to jail? Yeah, it would you know it would I would not be in bonds. Let's put it that way. Well, it's interesting because I've often said my desert island portfolio strategy would be managed futures, which is a trend following type of strategy. I don't know if that's a really fair desert island strategy because that would require someone to be actively trading it. And I didn't want to say get get put in jail for 10 years because the only time I've been arrested in my entire life was for drinking a beer when I think when I was 20 years old in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. So this, for some reason, this conversation is having all of my skeletons come out of the closet. But they, down there in South Carolina, they just take you to the jail, write you a ticket, let you go. So it wasn't, wasn't too bad, listeners. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit. I mean, by the way, on the end of that conversation, I, there's a quote I just loved. You may want to talk about it. Maybe we can just move on in this same theme which you said, I sort of feel compelled to remind people that the moral significance of inflation and deflation, deflation is people doing good. Inflation is people screwing up. And I thought that was a really interesting statement. Do you want to talk about that at all? Or you just want to move on from here? Sure. I mean, if you think about like the deflationary or disinflationary environment we've had over the last 20 or 30 years, and keep in mind that, by the way, you know, this disinflation has not been consistent across all products or sectors like it's really existed mostly in, in technology and you know peter Thiel has talked about this too like one of the reasons that you have persistent deflation in technology is because it's unregulated there, there there's virtually no regulation on computers on phones or anything like that so you can do whatever you want and there's constant innovation there's lots of you know regulation on drilling for oil or railroads or stuff like that and prices never come down you know, if, if you think about these deflationary forces, like that is a product of capitalism working. That is, that is what capitalism is supposed to do. It's supposed to make costs come down over time. And when it's allowed to work, it does work. You know, what you've had the last, you know, six to eight years is central banks globally sort of fighting against that. You know, they're sort of confusing good deflation with bad deflation. And there is such a thing as bad deflation, sort of what Japan has, you know, but just as good deflation where price come down because of capitalism, because of competition, like you want to let that happen. And central banks have been fighting against that and trying to create inflation instead. Well, in the, in the funny quote you had in one of your, your pieces recently in June was that, where is it? It says, do you remember last year that we said the Fed would pursue the path of least embarrassment? And I thought that was such a wonderful phrase because as people talk about the emotions that drive markets, you know, there's the, the greed and fear, which people always talk about. And then, you know, the Buffett Munger crew off, often talks about envy, you know, being what, what drives markets in many ways. And I thought this was interesting, just, just kind of talking about it's not necessarily getting it right or doing the right thing, but it's just not being embarrassed about their policy in general. If you work for the government... I used to work for the government, and I said in, in the beginning of this piece, I said I used to work in the Coast Guard. Like in the Coast Guard, the worst possible thing if you work for the government is to be embarrassed, is to look bad, right? Because there's no P&L. It's not like, you know, for me, the, the, the worst thing for you and me is to lose money. That would be the worst thing in the world. But if you work for the government, it's to be embarrassed. And so the Fed is very concerned with making sure that their policies look good in hindsight, and they never want to be seen doing the wrong thing. And that fear of being embarrassed motivates all their decisions. 
And I have to say, it's gotten worse over time. Like the Greenspan Fed, I mean, the Volcker Fed didn't care. The Greenspan Fed cared a little more. Bernanke cared a little more. The Yellen Fed is very preoccupied with not doing or saying the wrong thing. It leads to all kinds of bad decisions. You know, I was just looking and there's a website that I frequent often. We mentioned it in a prior podcast called Charity Buzz. I saw that you could have similar to the Buffett style auctions where you can go have lunch with Buffett. But for some reason, people pay like I think this year went for $3.2 million. Both Ray Dalio, who runs the largest hedge fund in the world, Bridgewater, and Volcker had his was like, I think it was like $5,000 maybe. And I was like, oh my God, that's almost worth me flying just New York <laughs> and have lunch with him. I mean, can you imagine one of the most amazing uh, architects of you know, modern day financial system. And for some reason, uh, nobody's interested. I don't know why. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's switch gears a little bit. I'm actually giving a speech later this summer in Vancouver. And I was reading through some of your issues and it seemed like you, you think I should probably be looking uh, to do a little house hunting when I'm up there. <laughs> you talk a lot about Canada. Maybe talk a little bit about your thesis, what's going on in the world of the, the, the Canadas of the world, but also you talk a little bit about New Zealand and some other countries and maybe just kind of expand on, on some of your ideas there. So I've been, this, this started with Canada back in early 2013. I've been a Canada bear for about three years now. It was all based on housing. I mean, the, the, can, the Canadian housing market being goofy is not a new phenomenon. It's been goofy for about five years now. Um, and it just keeps, I, I don't, I don't know if you saw this statistic, but you know, the median house in Vancouver is up 37% year over year in Toronto, it's 15 and the average house in all of Canada is now $510,000. That's the median house in all of Canada. So they have a massive housing bubble and it refuses, it absolutely refuses to pop. And one of the reasons is because, you know, interest rates in Canada are very low. Uh, overnight rates are half percent. Uh, the bond market is pretty bit up. I want to say 10 years or around 1.2% or something like that. Uh, and everybody's heard about um, Chinese money coming in. And everybody's heard that, you know, the energy sector blew up in Calgary. Alberta real estate is down quite a bit, but it hasn't spread to the rest of the country yet. But if you look across the world, like all these countries where you have these commodity currencies like uh, Australia, New Zealand, and to a lesser extent, Sweden, you know, there's a handful, about a half dozen developed countries out there that have huge housing bubbles. I mean, just massive. I don't know what the catalyst is going to be, you know, the macro catalyst to sort of make these all pop at the same time, but it's going to have global effects. Uh, it's not just going to be isolated to Canada or to Australia, probably going to happen in a coordinated fashion. And there's going to be big implications for the, for the global economy. How do you implement this thesis? Because it, it's a little bit easier, perhaps, in the U.S. when the real estate bubble was kind of going on. And by the way, I have friends in Canada, and for many of them, it's a well-known situation. I have one buddy who was trying to sell his house, but his sister wouldn't move out, and he's just every day would wake up just sweating, saying, "I got to get out of this house. I know that it's ridiculous pricing, and you know, you hear all the stories about buyers just buying unseen. What's the investment?" thesis there? How can you implement a, a trade on this? Well, there's there's three different legs to the trade. There's two that are good and one that one that is hard. First of all, you know, the Canadian dollar, which by the way, you know, for full disclosure, I'm short. 
uh, and I got short a couple years ago, but you know, it started around parity and now it's around 128 and it's probably, you know, if, if, if you do have a crisis in Canada, it's going to go to 160 or higher, uh, in dollar CAD. So the currency is really, you know, where the uh, escape valve is because the Bank of Canada is going to cut rates from 50 basis points to zero. They probably cut negative. They probably do QE. And so if you think that the Fed is even contemplating hiking, that currency cross goes massively in your favor if you're short CAD. You can play the interest rates through interest rate futures. You can do the same thing in Australia. You can do the currency. And the hard part of the trade is you can be short the banks. And the banks are very hard to short. They pay 5% dividends. They're hard to borrow. Retail investors in Canada pile into them constantly. There's massive short squeezes. It's, that, has been a, that has been a much harder short than financial stocks in the U.S. in 2005 and 2006. And it continues to be a difficult short. I apologize to my poor Canadian friends if the loonie does get pounded, but I would love that to happen because about three out of my five bucket list ski destinations are across Canada and the Powder Highway with Revelstoke. So I, it would make the, the ski trip that I've always dreamed of doing a lot cheaper. But that's an interesting, interesting one to keep an eye on. I agree the banks can be tough, but the, uh, the loonie may be in trouble. I, I'm looking down on kind of your portfolio update and, and, you do publish your portfolio to readers in your trades, which kudos to you. A lot of commentators, you know, take the stance of just talking about ideas, but, but don't talk about the actual implementation. And I see further down the list, you actually have some coal holdings. Uh, can you talk about that briefly? I got bullish on coal. Just, I was, you know, it's one of those, you ever do one of these trades where you're just sort of contrarian for the sake of contrarian? Coal had been in just a relentless bear market. And this was about, it was probably about six months ago. And I said, you know, we're coming up towards the election. You know, I bought, you know, I, I am one of the many, many investors that got burned on BTU bonds. I bought the uh, unsecureds. I, I said, if you think that there's, a, you know, even a 50-50 chance of a Republican getting elected, you know, all the, this, all the pain in coal just kind of goes away. And I'm, you know, I'm just willing to take that as a coin flip. I have a small holding in a coal ETF, KOL. And I, like I said, I bought the unsecureds for BTU. And I got to tell you, I sure lost money in that trade, but it's been educational. You know, I'm more of a equities, macro, FX rates guy. I don't know a lot about credit. And so this, this trade has just hair all over it. Uh, and I've learned a lot about, you know, how credit works in the bankruptcy process and stuff like that. So the money I, you know, lost in it is almost worth the education. But actually, I still hold the bonds. And, you know, depending on what I get in the workout, I might end up not losing money anyway. The, uh, the coal trade's interesting. Going back to that study I was talking about earlier of down years in a row, you can download U.S. stock sector and industry data on the French Fama database going all the way back to the 20s. And so we ran a similar study on actually sectors and industries, which being more concentrated than asset classes and more volatile, you would expect more down years in a row sort of phenomenon. And you had coming into this year, we actually wrote an article called why you should ask for coal stocks, why you should ask for coal, parentheses, stocks for, in your stocking this year, because coal stocks, along with a few other uh, investments, I believe the yen and, of course, the gold miners, basically anything metals and mining, had been down five years in a row. And that's an incredibly rare, I mean, it happened something like 0.1% of the all years. There had been only one instance of a industry or sector or anything to my knowledge that's been down six years in a row and that was actually also coal stocks 
but during the Great Depression. So, so far that trade's working out great. This year, coal, gold miners, yen, all those seem to be flying off the shelves, but certainly wouldn't have been true last year. All right, we're going to do about one or two more market questions, then want to talk to you a little bit about your writing process in general. When we were, I believe when you and I met, we were at a conference, we were both speaking, and I think you were on some sort of options, tail hedging sort of panel. And you do talk a lot about volatility and options, the volatility of volatility. So what's kind of your thinking about having a portfolio for a lot of our investors or buy and hold type of people that have a set allocation, but but trying to think about whether it's volatility or black swans or tail hedging, whatever it may be. I know those all are not the same thing. How do you think about that world? What's your general philosophy on those sort of trades? Because I know you talk a lot about these these kind of long volatility payoffs at some point, but maybe you can make a few comments uh, on that's a that's a broad topic. But any any general thoughts there? Yeah, uh, it's, it's, you have a pretty good memory about that conference. I actually I forgot about that uh, panel discussion. I think what I was talking about at the time this was like back in 2012. I was talking about tails and how people like to they like to buy the down tail but nobody ever buys the up tail and i think the the you know the s&p 500 was around the uh, you know 15 or 1600 at that point uh, i was uh, i was telling people that i was buying the 2500 strike calls out a couple of years that trade almost worked <laughs> it almost worked you know when you're thinking about tails there's actually two and you know the tail risk hedge funds are you know they're all focused on the down tail so they they're focused on you know buying calls in yen or uh buying calls in gold or you know buying calls in vix or buying puts in the S&P you know and my argument was that you should actually you could you should focus on buying the puts in vix or you know you you should focus on the other tail too uh in terms of like volatility you know around 10 years ago there was sort of this idea that you could own volatility as an asset class. You know, if you backtested holding the VIX with a, a stock portfolio, it improved your portfolio characteristics and improved your sharp, just improved your portfolio characteristics. There was this rush to try to securitize VIX and turn it into an ETF, and they did. They did with VXX. And anyone who's, you know, ever played around with VXX knows that it just goes down day after day after day relentlessly, which is a feature of how the ETF works, rolling VIX futures from one month to the next, and it has to pay this just enormous carry of about 25 or 30% a year. So there's just this, like, there's this huge carry uh, that you have to pay just to hold volatility. You know, I think people have sort of been disabused of this notion that you should, you know, have volatility as a hedge because, you know, if you're paying, it's an expensive hedge, you know, if you're paying 25 or 30% a year in carry just to hold on to this thing. People have gotten more creative. They've sort of, they have some more sophisticated uh, vol ETF, stuff like that. You know, I'm sort of old school. Like if I want to trade volatility, like I'll actually trade the listed options and Delta hedge them. You know, I'm not really into like the higher order ball products, but yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. We think a lot about that world, and I think that's an important comment about the upside tail as well. And a lot of people, you know, they're so focused on the downside of everything, but you can have environments where if you're not exposed to the upside, you never participate in that. You know, the, the compound return you see over the last 100 years for stocks or bonds or whatever it may be includes all periods. It includes the periods where people after a bear market freak out 
then they no longer may have exposure, even in good times that, you know, over the last seven years, how many people have sat on the sidelines because they said there's no way that, you know, even if stocks are expensive, there's no way that the market can continue going up. And, and we know that, that that's possible. Shift gears a little bit, and we can always go back to this, but I want to talk a little bit about your writing process. And so listeners, by the way, Jared has a new book coming out, should be out by the time this podcast gets uploaded this week called All the Evil in This World, which is such a wonderful title. And I, I spent the last week reading through it. And I actually probably was in San Francisco. I lived in San Francisco for about a year and a half in, what was this, 03, 04, and I was in Tahoe as well. So we may have crossed paths in one of those years. I'm not sure. But it takes place in, in kind of the, the San Francisco area. But talk a little bit about first about your writing process, you know, both for the daily newsletter, as well as for the book and how you go about it. Is it is it a set, you know, nine to five sort of thing? Or is it like some writers you write from 10 p.m. to two in the morning? Or how do you how do you go about churning out all this great content? I turn out like you said, I turn out a lot of content. I mean, I write, you know, three pages a day for the Daily Dirt Nap. I write for Malden Economics, a weekly piece in a very large monthly piece. Uh, I write for Forbes. I write for a couple other places and two books. And I just started the third one this weekend. It's, I mean, it's a lot, you know, I'm, on an average day, I'm probably writing, you know, two to 4,000 words a day. My process is I turn on the computer. Number one, I open Microsoft Word. Number two, and number three, I start writing. <laughs> like I just, I have to treat it like a job and it's, it is nine to five. You know, I'm sitting here in my office in Myrtle beach. i put on a suit most days and sometimes maybe just slacks and a shirt. And I go into work and I work in my office. I work a full day and then I go home. I've never really been one of these people who like, you know, I just sort of get struck by creativity in the middle of the night and I have to get up and write and stuff. No, it's, it's a job for me. There's a great quote and I'm going to probably muck it up, but it was something along the line of writing is an easy process. You, all you got to do is sit down at your typewriter, which by the way, it shows the date, sit down at your typewriter and open up a vein. And it uh, it's challenging for me because I go through very much a, I don't have particularly a you know manic personality, but my writing comes in bunches. So for very much for like the books or white papers, it's all I can focus on for about a week or a month. And then I just have to dead stop. But it's funny what you talked about going to the office and wearing a suit because I worked at home for about a month when I lived in Lake Tahoe and was actually working in the, in the finance space for the first week, maybe was getting up, you know, showering, shaving, wearing, uh, you know, like business casual sort of outfit. Fast forward a week. I've gained like 20 pounds. I'm wearing, I'm wearing pajamas at 3 p.m. I have a beard and just, you know, every 10 minutes I'd be like, well, maybe I'll go see what's in the fridge. Maybe I'll take a little break and get a snack. So I think you're right about having to have that discipline because it can be, uh, it can be a little challenging. Otherwise, I, I, we, we tend to be pretty casual here in our offices in Los Angeles, but it, it can certainly be a slippery slope as well. I'm going to talk about one or two more things. Oh, so let's talk about the new book. So you get the new yeah. book is going to be out and, and this is fiction, you know, or based on your experiences, but essentially a, not a nonfiction finance book. And it's your second book, right? Yep. First okay. one was uh, Street Freak, which was a memoir of my time at Lehman Brothers. And this is, this is a novel and it takes place a around a real trade when 3Com spun off Palm Pilot in March of 2000. It was sort of the top of the bubble. It, it is a novel, and there's seven characters, and there's seven chapters in the book. Each chapter is one character. 
all it's a couple hours out of out of these people's lives over the course of the day and they're all connected by this one trade and so did you do this is this traditional publisher self-publisher how to how'd you go about it it's kind of a hybrid it's a hybrid between traditional and self i gotta tell you like this was as you can imagine this was you know it was a hell of a book to find a publisher for because it's it's very it's about as niche as you can possibly get there's a lot of financial jargon you know that just it's it's going to be over the heads of a lot of people it's, it's kind of a disturbing book it's very dark it really it, you know isn't for everyone so i ended up doing this this hybrid deal with a company called inscribe digital and basically it's um there is a physical book on create space and then it's pushed out to 300 different digital outlets you know including amazon barnes and noble iBooks, stuff like that. So it is, it is pretty much everywhere, which is nice. Did they design the cover? Did you design it? Because it's a, it's a nice cover. Thank you. No, I just, I, uh, I hired some guy in London to do it over the internet. Smart man. I have so many buddies who publish through traditional publishing and let our friends at the big houses design some of the covers, and it's some of the most like it, it, geometrically neon shapes on almost every cover. And they, they, they would, when we did traditional, cause I've done both and they would send us some cover designs and you'd look at this and you say, I'm pretty sure this is the same cover that's on like three or four different books. Uh, but anyway, pluses and minuses each. I'm just always curious about uh, how people think about it. So I'm going to ask you a question. We ask every listener. And if you don't have an answer, I actually have an answer for you from one of your issues. Uh, it may be more embarrassing for you than, than to <laughs> answer on your own. But we, we always say, Hey, if you have something, and it could be a website, it could be a place to visit. It could be a recipe. It could be anything that we say you find beautiful, useful, or downright magical. And I have one, and I'll start. Uh, they're, they're actually, I'll go, I'm going to give two real quick. Two apps that I love that I've used in the past year that just work and are seamless. And this says a little bit about more li- my lifestyle. So if you, pl- if you need to plan ahead for eight months, it's probably not going to work for you. Hotel Tonight is a wonderful app. I think a lot of people know about it now, but it allows you... It originally was just if you wanted to book a hotel for tonight... And it gives you a selection of, so if you travel to New York, for example, it gives you a selection of the best hotels in New York, often for half off. I've seen them from two thirds off the price. Now it's even more user friendly because it lets you book, I think, for up for a full week, a week ahead of time. And it's really a seamless app. And then a, a close tangent to that in this sort of app economy is what we call, uh, I sold my last car using an app called Beepy. If you have a car that's been uh, within the last 10 years, for example, you know, the floor is CarMax. You can take it to CarMax. You know, that's the floor price. You could sell this car and you could probably get a, a higher price at something like uh, Craigslist, eBay. Huge pain in the ass, though. You got people coming to your house. They want to test drive it. They want to take it to their mechanic. BP will come out to your house, inspect the car, take it for a quick test drive email you, I don't know if it's the next day, two days later, an offer. And that offer was probably 20% higher than CarMax. You can accept it or not. They list it on their website for a month. If someone buys it, they show up to your house, give you a check, take the car, drive away. Or if no one buys it in a month, they buy it. So anyway, check out both of those. We'll put all these notes in the show notes. Do you have something for us? Any ideas? I have a, a secret weapon when it comes to shirts. Just, I am just religious. I just swear by these shirts. So they're called Eton, E-T-O-N. Um, sort of, it was actually named after the British boarding school. 
And this is a Swedish company. Never heard of Swedish shirt makers. These shirts, they're expensive. You know, with tailoring, it's going to be about 300 bucks a shirt. So these are dress shirts? Yeah, dress shirts. Yep. You know, you can roll it up in a ball and put an anvil on it. And then uh, a week later, pick it up, put it on, and your body heat will just make all the wrinkles go away within like 10 minutes. They're indestructible. They don't stain. Every shirt I've had that I've owned for years just never falls apart. They look amazing. I always get compliments on them. The 300 bucks that you'll spend is totally, totally worth it. You definitely get your money's worth. Swear by these shirts. That's perfect for me because I spend a lot of time wrinkling and spilling crap all over all my clothes. Uh, you know what I was going to use for you if you didn't have anything? Was you mentioned in one of your speed rounds. And so re- uh, listeners, Jared does a speed round at some of his issues where it's just kind of a stream of consciousness thoughts on whatever. And you mentioned, uh, you said, I'm not much into viral internet crap, but if you have three minutes, listen to Grace Vanderwall's audition on America's Got Talent. And so I actually listened, I'd, I'd heard about this and seen it go by. I hadn't listened to it, listened to it last night. And, and you're pretty right on, spot on. That was a awesome, awesome pipes out of a 13-year-old girl. I think she's from New York. Yeah, she's from upstate New York. The funny, I mean, really the amazing thing about her is that you, like you can, you've seen 12 or 13 year olds that can sing. That's not new. What's different about, there's two things that are different about her. One is she's a musical prodigy. She's been writing music since she was three years old. And these songs that she writes, I mean, they're just incredible. The other thing is when she sings, it's like, it's like, it's like hearing the emotions of somebody who's like, 40 years older like she's at the maturity it's 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 hard to explain like you know when when she gets to the quiet parts in the song like the whole the whole place was just silent you know i mean it's just amazing i said in a later piece that i think i really thought that she is like a once in a 30 year type of talent like like you know michael jackson like people like that like she's that good how, however, I'm going to read the line before this. So this is going to be the big caveat for you've also gone on record saying, I wanted that. I wanted that way is the best pop song ever created ever. Better than Michael, better than Madonna, better than everyone. So take, take what has just been said with a grain of salt listeners. If you, uh, if you don't, if you, if you don't think that's the best pop song ever. Extra All right, boys. look, um, let's wind it down a little bit. Uh, where can people find you if they want to find more information? So the Daily Dirt Nap is www.dailydirtnap.com. That's where you can get information about the newsletter. A subscription costs $600 a year. I also have stuff at Malden Economics. So if you go to maldeneconomics.com, I write a free newsletter for them that anybody can sign up for. And I also have a cheaper version that you can get for um, $200 a year, which is a monthly piece. Uh, in terms of the book, just go to you know Amazon and search on Jared Dilly and you can get either of my books. And like we said, the, you, know, by, you know by the time this comes out, um, the book should, should be live. I mean, there's also my author website, which is jareddillion.com. And you're also starting to tweet a little bit more now, right? I guess I, I'm. Uh, I really, I really wish I had more of a presence on Twitter. I just, uh, I'm usually busy writing, and I don't. I'm not really focused on uh, getting the tweets out. But yeah, so I have a little bit of a presence on Twitter. What's What's the handle there? At Daily Dirt Nap. And I mean, we've gone almost a full hour without explaining what Dirt Nap is. Readers probably wonder why you have this newsletter called the Daily Dirt Nap with a 
uh, high production cost, I imagine, drawing of someone jumping off of a cliff is what it looks like. <laughs> I hope I, I hope you have the same designer from the book. But uh, no, what, I, explain I explain what a, the dirt nap is for uh, for all the for all the listeners. So when I started in this business on the Picos, like I said, you know, back in '99. You know, the Picos was full of all these surfer traders. I mean, it was California, all these California dudes trading options. And they had their they had their own lexicon. And, you know, they would sit there and look up at the screens and say, dude, the spoos are taking a hell of dirt nap. And dirt nap, <laughs> dirt nap was their word for, like, the market going down. So anytime stocks went down, which was not very frequently, they would say the market was taking a dirt nap. So I sort of, I you know, I, I, pick, I picked that up and then I took it with me in New York. And I've you know tried to spread it everywhere, so everybody says dirt nap now. So and, and affectionately refer to your readers as dirts. Yep. Um, well, look, thanks for being on today. For the listeners, you can always find. We'll put all the show notes on here. We'll put links to the shirts, to the videos, to Jared's new book, "All the Evil of This World," which should be out dropping tomorrow, Tuesday, the twenty first. It always helps us out. You go onto iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, and if you love it or hate it, rate it there as well. Jared, thanks so much for being here today, and want to thank all the listeners for listening in. Good investing. Good investing.